Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. I believe in the Blue Pew Bible, that is page 796. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. This is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That text from the gospel of, or from the gospel, from the book of Romans, is a text that is one that uh, was so foundational for the church, especially around the time of the Reformation, because Martin Luther read that text and he said, This is something new, something radically different. And he started focusing on faith as the means whereby people are saved. And it compelled him to teach and to preach and to think about what the church needed to be. And this whole thing called the Reformation started. So we talk about the reform of the church because Martin Luther read that passage out of Romans chapter 1. It's a significant verse for sure. Well, I've been thinking about uh, our work here, God's work among us. I've been thinking about it a lot. Thinking about what it means for us to preach the gospel and to go into the world with the gospel, what it means for us to teach people about Jesus Christ. Last year, um, I, don't th- I don't think people re- ever remember these kind of things, but last year I actually preached a series on going into the world, uh, into our circles of influence. That's the term that we used a lot. Taking the good news of Jesus into our circles of influence. And I went through a number of sermons that talked about our circles of influence and what they were and how we need to have some kind of impact on our circles of influence. One of the things that came out in all of that is, oh, sorry, there we go, is that the power of the gospel is big enough, powerful enough, significant enough that it changes hearts. That people are different Because of the gospel alone. And what I meant by that is that there isn't a whole lot of need for us to be great in our proclamation. There isn't a whole lot of reason for us to be really uh, skilled at our proclamation. Because the gospel itself has a power to change the lives of people. People will often say, I'm afraid that I won't know what to say to somebody if I talk to them about Jesus. Or I'm afraid that I don't know my Bible well enough. There are lots of reasons why we think that, oh, you know, maybe I, I need to hold back and not carry out this responsibility of talking to others about Christ. When really, the gospel itself has a power to change people's lives. And so, the gospel itself works to transform hearts. There's a power there right within the gospel itself. The gospel convinces You don't have to be really persuasive yourself because the gospel itself has such a power within it to transform human lives. And the gospel works its power. It's not as though we 
have it out there and it, it goes forth. It has all this power, but then we're not sure it's going to do anything. It really does indeed do something. There's a sense in which the gospel, in fact, doesn't need us at all. I think God's capable of doing this without me, don't you? I think he's capable of doing this without you if he really wants to. God has the ability to do things through the gospel that we couldn't otherwise do and can't do at all. God doesn't need my wisdom. God doesn't have to have me be some kind of Bible expert. God doesn't have to have me be an expert in evangelistic techniques as a great teacher. What we need is to have the gospel get out there. Last week I described for you how I went to a Bible camp in 1973 On Wednesday, I didn't care at all about Jesus. On Wednesday, I thought it was a total mistake for me to be there. On Wednesday, I thought that my money was totally wasted in going to Bible camp. Couldn't figure out what in the world I had done. Thought it was a huge mistake. And by Thursday night, I had completely changed my life because of the gospel. I had completely turned around. I had become a faithful Christian by Thursday night after Wednesday morning not being at all enamored with Jesus. And I don't think that it was just the skill of the people who were speaking to me about the gospel that transformed my heart. I think the gospel transformed my heart. And we need to be ready to see that happen in our lives as we put the gospel out there. And so we need to build relationships with people and live before them the gospel, speak before them the gospel, and the promise is that the gospel will do its work. And we know that there is a power there within the gospel for it to change lives. Here's the text again. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so the power is not in the preacher. The power is not in the person who sits down and studies. The power is in the gospel itself. Or we could look at this text from Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And because the text says that the spirit judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, the word judges the attitudes of the heart, the gospel judges the attitudes of the heart, we can see that the gospel is what transforms and changes people. So that's Actually, a point that I was making a year ago about this time, thinking about us going into the world with our, in our circles of influence and wanting to talk to people about Jesus. Today, a second point. But I need some help. And so, Megan and Oren, I'd like you to come up here, please. Megan and Oren have something in common. And I'm going to tell you what it is. In 1926, long before Megan and Oren were born, there was a fellow named Dow Merritt and his wife Alice who left the southern part of the United States and moved to Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, and then in the 1930s moved to Zambia. In 1938, Orville Brattel moved from California to Zambia, being followed not long after by his parents, Jesse Bertel and Augusta May Bertel. And there in the southern province of Zambia, they and a few other families did the work of Christ, including eventually, which I'm going to tell you about in just a moment, Ron Bailey's parents. Well, when these Christians went to what was then northern Rhodesia in the 1930s, there was little presence of the gospel in the southern province. They started the work of Jesus absolutely from scratch. There were no Christians 
There were no churches. They preached the gospel under the shade of trees. They started churches on the grass-covered savannas. They built schools. They cared for orphans. They raised their families. They suffered from the need of the comforts of home. They suffered from malaria. They suffered medical hardships. In some cases, they lost their lives. And in the case of Elaine Bertel, and some of you will remember her story or maybe even knew her, they had their lives taken from them. Well, today, in the southern province of Zambia, there are about 400 churches of Christ. There are about 130 churches of Christ in Canada. There are 400 churches of Christ in the southern province of Zambia. And they are a direct descendant of these churches, of the work of the Merits and the Battelles and the Baileys and the others who were there working. There are numerous school campuses. There are hundreds of students who go to school who otherwise would not, some of whom we sponsor, by the way. And there are many, many orphans that have been cared for and in some cases have literally been saved from early death. Now I think for the, all of us this is significant in some ways because we give money to these works. Um, many of you have uh, been associated with all of this, knowing about it for a long time. And so there's some connection between our church and that work in Zimbabwe and in Zambia, in the southern province of Zambia specifically. But for these two that are on the stage this morning... It is especially significant. And that's because the connection that these two have to the work that has been done in the name of Jesus in response to the gospel. Megan, when she was born, was taken to Namuyanga Christian School, which is like 10 kilometers from the little community of Colomo in the southern province. It's about 100 kilometers north of the Zimbabwe-Zambia border, uh, you probably have heard of Victoria Falls, one of the seven wonders of the world that David Livingston discovered. And if you drive north from Victoria Falls, you'll eventually come to Colombo. And if you head kind of south and east there, if I remember correctly, or along a dirt road, you're going to come to a place called Namuyanga, Namuyanga Christian School, which is the outgrowth of, the result of, the work of Dow Merritt and his wife Alice and others, including the Baileys, who were there in the 1930s. Well, Namuyanga was the place that Megan was taken to when she was born because there, there was a lady named Kathy. At that time, she was Kathy Kamalo. Kathy was willing to take in orphans, people who were born in the bush and whose mothers died in childbirth, just as Megan's had. And so Kathy was willing to take children like that in, and she took in Megan. The agreement was that she would keep those babies for two years, and if after two years the family was not able to take them back, then someone could adopt them. And so two years, almost to the day, after Megan was born, Kelly and Robin had the privilege and the blessing. Oh, it's been a blessing of taking Meg from that situation and have her come into our home. And it's been so wonderful to have that happen in our lives. And so when I look back at what happened in the 1930s when people went to Zambia and began to minister there and when mission was taking place, when I think about the sacrifices that they made so that the gospel could be preached, 
It has a direct impact, not just on my life, but of course on hers. And the reason I have her here is because I want her to hear that story. I want her to know it and to understand that people made sacrifices. They made sacrifices in the name of Jesus so that others could hear the gospel and could have their lives changed. And because there were missionaries that went there and churches that were planted, in this case a school that was founded, and hundreds of students have gone to Namuyanga and have learned. Because of all of that, I have a daughter today. And I'm so grateful that those people were were willing to make those kinds of sacrifices. But Megan is not the only one here with Zambian blood running through her veins. Because Oren, although he looks a lot different than Megan, has Zambian blood running through his veins. Ron was born in Zambia. Because in the 1930s, his grandfather and his father went and joined the Merits in Zambia to do work there, mission work. And so Oren's great-grandfather has that heritage of having gone there and done work. And his grandfather was there doing work. And even today, the Bailey family is still, they're going to go and, you're going back to Zambia, what, in a month or so? They're going to go again? Okay, okay, to Zimbabwe in this case. And that's part of the story I'll tell in just a moment. But they're, they're going to be going back to Africa in a little while, and they go there frequently, and the reason they do is because of that connection. Now, Ron was saying Zimbabwe, uh, or, or was saying not Zambia, because he, he may be going to Zimbabwe, or they're going to be in Botswana, or wherever they're going to be. But they have a special connection still with Zambia and Zimbabwe. You'll remember that about a year ago or so, uh, the Melanganis, I don't know if I can say that name correctly, but Stella and Velape were here, and they are currently in Zimbabwe. And when Ron was seven years old, he moved from Zambia to Zimbabwe and his dad started working more with the churches there in Zimbabwe. And one of the young men, probably just a kid at the time, that Ron's dad started taking care of and built a special relationship was Velape. And Ron, you have to correct me, but I think if I remember right, you told me once that Velape called your father dad. He called him father. Still does. Even though Ron's father's been dead for several years, Philippi still refers to Ron's father as his father because of that special relationship. Well, Oren, you need to know that. You need to hear that story. And you need to know what your grandfather and great-grandfather and your father and mother continue to do in that country, in Zimbabwe and in Zambia, and the work that is carried on. And we all need to know and understand the power of the witness of those who've made sacrifices for the good news of Jesus, who've gone into places where their lives were threatened, and in some cases, even their lives were taken because of the good news of Christ. Well, I ask myself the question, why? Why did they do it? Why did they go? Like, we don't go. I don't go. Maybe I, maybe I don't go because I'm not called. But maybe I don't go because it's hard. Can you imagine going to Zambia in 19, 
35? And going to a place where there are lions who roam the country? Where you never know if your next step in the tall grass is going to land you on top of a snake that will kill you in just a matter of seconds? Where there is the deprivation of food and medical care and all the things that they had to put up with? Why in the world would someone do that? Why did Paul himself preach and do what he did? It's because of the gospel. It's because people are transformed by the gospel. Because the gospel empowers. It changes. It does something to the human heart. The human life is changed because of the good news of Jesus. Changed to the point where someone can say, I'm going to leave Santa Rosa, California, like the Bertels did, and say, I'm going to Zambia. Or like the Merits would say, I'm leaving the southern part of the United States and I'm going to Zambia. The gospel changes hearts and lives. In fact, it's the power that motivates us to take Christ to the world. Listen to Paul's words. I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they. This is what we preach. And he's talking about the gospel when he says that. And he's saying that the grace of God transformed his heart, transformed his life, and made him everything that he is so that he seizes the opportunities that are given to him to preach the good news of Jesus because of the transformation in him that the grace of God has brought about. Isn't that beautiful? The human heart, the human life, changed by the good news of Jesus, compelling someone to do something that they otherwise would not do. And it happened certainly in the life of the Merits and the Bertels and the Baileys. And it happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. And he goes on to say, my gospel is simply from the Lord. God has called me to this and he's changed my life and so I do what I do. In both cases, Paul says it's the grace of God which is offered to him in the gospel which compels him to take the gospel into the world. And of course, it's the gospel that must move us to take the gospel into the world. I mentioned last week this whole notion of sometimes when people hear me say, let's get excited about sharing the gospel, that they think I'm just laying on this guilt trip. And yet, it's the good news of the gospel that she see us excited about sharing with others what it is that we possess in Christ. Do you remember what it was like when you first heard about Jesus? Do you remember the joy that you felt the moment that you came out of the waters of baptism? I do. I remember it like it was yesterday. Camp Yamhill, August 12, 1973. I came out of the water and a guy with whom I'd been an enemy 
was standing on the shore. And I came out of the river and the first person to greet me and shake my hand was that guy. And I knew things were different. I knew that I was different. I knew that the gospel had done something to me and in me. There had been a a revelation and a revolution. And I remember what it was like to be forgiven. I I remember what it was like to feel that transformation in my heart. And for people to say, Kelly's different now. And I want so badly for people to experience that. And we have the chance to do it. Now, we sometimes get sidetracked. There are things that sidetrack us, and we know that. The world gets in our way. There are things that take our attention away. Sometimes we're self-focused. Sometimes even the church gets in the way. It's interesting to hear young people talk today. You know, sometimes they, they criticize the church for being what they would consider to be too worldly or too institutionalized or too much maintenance-oriented, too centered on itself. And I get that. Sometimes the church is like that. But the church is not just the problem. The church has the problem of being so far sometimes from the simple impact of the gospel on our lives. How does the gospel impact you? How has it impacted you? We need to be so influenced by the good news of Jesus that sharing the gospel becomes front and center for us in our lives because we recognize the importance of this message for the world. There are people around us everywhere that are dying. There are people who are not experiencing the joy in Christ that we experience. And we have a chance to share with those people the good news of Jesus. And in fact, that's God's plan for how it should work. And so this morning, I want us to just be thinking about the simple gospel. Are we not changed because Jesus has saved us? And what does it mean for us to receive that kind of salvation in Christ? How are we different? How is our thinking different? What has come into our lives because of Christ? And what is the blessing that needs to come to others through us sharing with them the good news of Jesus? Jim Elliott was born uh, in Portland, Oregon. Became a Christian at a young age. 1949, he graduated from Wheaton College with a degree in Greek. In 1952, he decided he wanted to be a missionary, so he went to Ecuador. Started working there among the Quiche Indians. And the Quiche Indians are a little bit familiar to me because when I was at ACU, there was a missionary that had come back on furlough named Pat Heil. And Pat was a, a wonderful guy and had been working among the Quiche had experience specifically with these people. But Jim Elliott, some years before this, had gone to minister among the Quiche. He met his wife there, Elizabeth. They were married in 1953. Later on, a baby came in February 1955 as they continued to work there. But while he was working with the Quiche Indians, Elliott began preparing to reach a very violent tribe. I don't even really know how to pronounce this. I think it's Huarani, the Huarani Indian tribe in Ecuador. And so he and four other missionaries, Ed McCulley, Roger Uderian, Pete Fleming, and their pilot, Nate Saint, made contact with somebody who could provide them with a plane. 
And through the use of the airplane, they went to the Huarani Indians. And they started with a loudspeaker. And they would fly over the, the villages of the Huarani Indians. And in the Huarani language, they would begin to tell them that we want to be your friends. And they dropped food and they dropped gifts and various things, kind of preparing this quite violent people for the fact that they were going to come and wanted to get to know them. Well, they started dropping these things through baskets down with a rope. They would drop a rope down with a basket. And the people would start to put gifts back in the basket. So one day they pulled it up and there was a parrot. And they pulled it up and there was some other kind of food that was in it. That They, they were making kind of a, a blessing back to these people for giving them things. And they thought, well, this is working. We're building a relationship with these people by dropping these baskets in. So they, they actually landed on the shore of the river next to the village where the tribe was and started making acquaintance with these people. They met a fellow that they called George. They didn't know his name, but they called him George and actually took him for a plane ride. Brought him back. George, they were sure, would tell the people the blessing of getting to know these new friends. Well, all of this occurred over just a few days. On January 8, 1956, Elliot and his friends parked the plane on the beach, went to see the Huaranis, and that was the last they were ever heard from. Elliot's body was found downstream, along with some of the other men. Ed McCauley's body was never found. And so these people had literally sacrificed their lives for the cause of the gospel. On October 28, 1949, about seven years before this, Elliot had written in his daily journal his belief that mission was to be his work in life. And he says, There is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You may have heard that quote. Elliot's the one who made it famous. Well, I asked myself, what in the world would cause somebody to go and do that? To risk going to a tribe they knew was violent, to go into that situation with the gospel, and to, in fact, lose their lives. And, of course, the reason they did it is because of the gospel. Because the gospel had worked in them this miracle. And they had been changed and gave their lives to it. Now what's maybe even more amazing is that Elizabeth Elliot, who actually has some Canadian background, she went to Prairie Bible Institute for some graduate training there. She continued her work with the Quiche for a couple of years. And at one point, there were some ladies from the Huarani tribe who came to visit the Quiche and who spent some time there with Elizabeth Elliot. And eventually, Elizabeth Elliot and her daughter, who was born 10 months before her father was killed, went out to the Huaranis and for two years ministered among the very people that had killed her husband. That's amazing to me. It's amazing until I start to think about the power of the gospel in a person's life.
And when I realize what it is that Jesus does within the human heart in transforming us through the gospel, it starts to make sense. And it starts to make sense to me how we as a people can have the kind of impact in our society that we can have through Jesus. That he wants us to have. And I think, I know there is just no reason why God can't work among us in the same way, with the same kind of power. What is it that could possibly hold us back from wanting to give to people this good thing of the gospel if it's going to work in lives like that? And so today, I just want you to consider the gospel. What does the gospel mean in your life? What does it mean in your heart? And what do we want it to mean for the people around us whom we long to have know Jesus? Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that there were people a long time ago who were willing to go to Zambia. And they went there because you called them through the gospel. Father, I'm grateful that their heritage remains. That there's evidence, even in our own church, of their influence. And therefore, of the power of your gospel to change lives. And to embolden people to make sacrifices for you. Father, I'm grateful that you continue to work today. God, sometimes we do get sidetracked. It's it's easy for us to be called away. It's easy for us to not think about the, the way in which the gospel needs to work in our own communities. But give us strength, God. Give us the ability to see past the things that distract us. Help us to stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us and made sacrifices for the good news. And help us to make sacrifices as well. Thank you, Lord, for calling our church to minister in our community. Help us to answer your call. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.